Hi guys, I'm so excited for this podcast with Shay, one of our judges for Choreography Confined. It's the competition made for lockdown. We're asking dancers to realise that their limitations have potential for creativity and to create dances using the space around them. This not only is a really interesting idea, it also gives us teachers opportunities to sell privates to create solos with our students. And welcome to Happy Dance, the podcast for dance teachers. I have the wonderful Shay with us today to talk about all things dance and her creative process of making um, multimedia work. So introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your performing and dance journey. Yeah. Um, hi, Lauren. Thank you so much for bringing me on today. Really excited to be chatting with you and your listeners. Yeah. So as you said, my name is Shay Donovan. I'm clearly from my accent, American. Uh, I was born and raised in New York and then studied in New Orleans and ended up in Los Angeles where I lived until I moved to the UK in, in 2017. And I, you know, grew up training as a dancer pre-professionally in New York, which gave me a really early sort of insight into what that world looked like. It was a real gift. As a kid, you know, I was getting to perform at Lincoln Center and Madison Square Garden and seeing all of these incredible venues and feeling the possibility of that industry at a young age, I think was really exciting and kind of got that motor running in me to pursue the arts professionally. So I, I danced forever growing up. Then I went to university and I um, majored in theater and minored in dance. Um, and then I also got a communications degree. And that's where sort of the film and the multimedia elements come in a little bit. And as one of my capstone projects at university, I did a dance film project that for me really opened up a lot of possibilities in my practice. I'd never really experimented with that before. I started taking some courses at university and I was like, wow, this is such a different way to experience and see dance, right? It's filmed, but not in the archival way where we just watch it back, you know, as if we're in a theater, but it's actually doing all these really different things to the movement. It really changes the perspective and the story. So I choreograph that right as well. So it kind of meshed all of my loves together. And then when I left school, I moved out to Los Angeles and then I was working professionally as, a, as an actor and a choreographer and a dancer in musical theater mostly, and then teaching as well. So that's sort of my journey leading up to, to where I am now, which is making a lot of virtual work because we obviously can't gather together. And then the film element really leads itself to us not being able to be in the same place because I can gather footage from different dancers in their individual spaces and then pull that together to create one piece while keeping everyone COVID safe. Yeah. Do you think that's almost been, obviously COVID is horrific, but the actual lockdown and kind of that side of it has given you kind of the creative freedom to create more individualised location work to bring together to create a film. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think, I mean, I think the gift of this time, if, if anything, is that it's encouraging us to see things in new ways, right? And it's really, I think as artists and creatives, really making us dig a little bit deeper and say, okay, like what have we not explored that we could take a closer look at now? How can we collaborate in different ways? So it sort of flexes your innovative muscles a little bit. And then, like you said, I then had access to all of these different environments that I normally wouldn't have, wouldn't have had, right? My, my last project, uh, Choreography Confined, which was the name of the work where I, I did a two-week workshop virtually with um, a group of dancers, six dancers, and they were based all over Europe and the United States. So I already had that the geographic diversity. And then the challenge that I posed to them was to create a piece that was a reflection of their confinement. So in their home spaces, wherever they were in the world, the workshops led them through different ways to like mine their space for movement. So whether that was objects in their space, the architecture of their space, and the idea was to not move anything out of the way, right? You keep your furniture where it is, you keep your stuff where it is, and you, you know, interact in the world rather than trying to adapt it to be more dancey, right? What if dance lives stuck in your house with you? And what does that look like? So doing that in lots of different people's homes all over the world, it was just stunning to see, right? Because it was very intimate because you were in people's homes. It was very different because you were seeing things you'd never normally see, right? You're getting this very inside look. And yeah, it was a really cool project that I certainly don't think I would have considered had we not all been stuck at home for so long. 
yeah, I thought it was really beautiful. And I really liked the fact that what you hear a lot of is, oh, I don't have the space to dance at home. I can't teach from my room because I haven't got the space to move and I can't choreograph because I'm used to having 6,000 feet to move around in. And actually, it highlighted the fact that what you perceive as a, a limitation can actually almost be a positive and it created so much opportunity for movement and opportunity to, like you said, explore your creative avenues in a circumstance where people might just have shut down and go, no, I can't, I, I physically can't move in my space, my house is too tiny and kind of almost reel off all the excuses they had rather than going, no, actually, this is what I'm dealt, this is the hand, the hand I've been dealt, the situation I'm in, what can I do with it? I can only control me. How can I make this work for me? Absolutely. I mean, I think part of the frustration about this time for a lot of people is that, you know, we're, we're human. We're creatures of habit. We do things the way we like to do them. And then when we can't do that, it's really frustrating. And for me, this project started because I was trying to move around in my room and I ended up getting really anxious because there was all this stuff in my, and I, like you just said, I'm used to being in a studio, having a space to create, right? Not having these limitations. My kinesphere was so limited. And I was like, oh gosh, this is just so frustrating. What can I do with this frustrated energy? So it was sort of, you know, it motivated me. I was like, okay, confined space. Like, I'm going to make you work for me. I'm going to make this interesting and I'm going to make it a fun, creative challenge. So yeah, I think there's something about, I think as well, adapting our perception of of dance. And I think that's true across all art forms right now, all live art, right? I'm personally not a huge, I mean, I think there's a lot of merits to like Zoom theater and all that sort of stuff. I find it really interesting. And I think if that's your creative impulse, then absolutely go for it. But I think for me personally, I didn't want to try and replicate live theater or replicate live dance. Those are my loves and I like them as they are. And I know that we can't create them where we are now, right? So I didn't want to try to impersonate that, but I wanted to apply the principles of those disciplines to the realities that we're in now and see what, what's new in, in there, right? So with choreography confined, I mean, it's dance, it's movement, it's choreography, right? But it's not as we're used to seeing it, but it's, you know, it's kind of more fun, I think, to play in this strange, unique way because once it's over, right? We'll be back to things the way that we, we usually enjoy them. But this might as well inform a little bit of our practice moving forward, right? So it's just a fun place to play, I think. Yeah, I think that's so true, what you said about not wanting to try and recreate a, a theatre show in a Zoom box or anything like that. Because like you said, it's never going to be the same because so much of live theatre and live performances is the atmosphere and the the reactions of the crowd and how the set is made up and everything that comes together to make that beautiful performance, it's not going to be able to be translated in the same way via Zoom. So thinking about how to make a completely different performance and not have the whole, oh, well, it would have been better on stage, I think is really important now, like how to maybe... If, say, you were doing your Christmas show, could each person film it in their garden, in their Christmas outfits, and then you could find a way to, to put it together to make a film rather than be like, oh, we can't perform it, so we won't, or we'll delay it, or we'll just do it over Zoom to get it out of the way, kind of thing, using that opportunity to really embrace the creativity and go, you know what, this is a completely new situation. No one's been through this pandemic before, we're all learning and growing together. Why not try something new and see if it works? So I think that's really, really inspiring what you did. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think it's a good lesson for early practitioners as well coming up in dance. I mean, I know when I left university and, and moved to Los Angeles, I had all kinds of ideas for choreography I wanted to stage, but you need the money to get a space. You need to produce a show, right? So I think there's something to be said about creating for the space if you're on a budget or you're an early career artist, or you're trying to create work, right? Let the space inspire you and create work that suits the space until you can, you know, afford to, to rent out the space of your dreams to create big work. But at least then you're continuing to make stuff and people are seeing it. And the space doesn't have to, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a constraint. It can be something that is inspiring. 
Yes, 100%. I think it's the people that do that that then make it to the stage where they can hire out a huge, beautiful theatre and set up the the show of their dreams, per se, because they've gone through that process of being like, what can I do now? What can I do with my budget, my allowance, my time frame right now? I, I don't want to go, oh, well, I can't, I can't possibly become this because I don't have 10 million pounds to spend. It's like everyone starts from zero and works their way up. And so it's about learning what you can do at each stage to the best of your ability. Even if it's not where you want to be in 10 years time, you've still done more than just sitting there complaining that you haven't got the 10 million to get you up that flight of stairs already. Right. Absolutely. So when, after you have this moment where you're like, Oh, for God's sake, I don't have enough room. I can't move in this space. And it inspired you to make choreography combined. What was the start? What was the creative process you went through to create it? So, well, I wanted it to be very participant centric, right? Because so I have performance art company, which is the umbrella under which I produce my work. And a lot of it is dance movement, movement theater, physical exhibition. It's, you know, it's sort of a variety of things, but a lot of it is participant focused. So the artists that are devising the work, I really want them to sort of like, I'll create a challenge or a hypothesis or a set of inquiries, and then I'll give it to them and they'll generate something that's organic to them. So I knew at the beginning that I didn't know what it was going to look like because it was going to really be driven by the artist. But I did have a really clear set of inquiries that I wanted us to, to explore together. And those were taking the space and mining it for movement which sounds like really abstract, right? But obviously the architecture of a space is really, now I'm no architect, right? But it's, it's like a kind of artistry that I can appreciate and between the lines and the textures and there's so many things in our home environment that we don't look at closely day to day that have a lot of movement in them, right? Whether that's the texture of your carpet even or the, where the you know, corner of your couch meets the wall or all these really you know, specific things that can really give us ideas. So we had sort of five workshops that focused on different ways to mine the space. And the first one was about engaging with the music. So I chose a piece of music, I gave it to the artists, and then um, I sort of walked them through a listening and then free writing workshop where they experience the sound, they free write about it for a little bit. I have them go through and underline, highlight, circle, different parts of speech, different imagery that comes up, all this sort of thing. So I walk them through this whole movement. They pull out all of these things. They put them into categories, right? So like feelings, actions, textures, et cetera. And then they can choose which of those categories they want to use as a jumping off point for exploring their movement. So that was day one was engaging with the music. Day two was zooming in on your space. So they'd identify, and again, this was all through like a 30 minute workshop where we'd build up to this, but they identify part of their space they were really curious about, whether that was the little door stop on the door or a little crack in their wall or whatever it might be. And then I lead them through this sort of exploration, getting closer and closer to this tiny space. And then you have sort of like a movement dialogue in that small space. You reflect on that and then you generate work based on that. We did a day where we explored partnering with objects. So I'm sure you're familiar with Frantic Assembly, the physical theater company. So I've done their uh, teacher training program and I love their work and I love their methodology. I just think everything they do is brilliant. And they have this really great exercise they do to build work with a partner that's a sequencing exercise, right? So you create a few movements on your partner's body and then they create a few back on you and then that builds and builds from there. So I adapted that exercise, but with objects in the space. So it would be with your couch or with your fridge or with your bookshelf, right? And you created this whole duet with this one specific object. And then I had them take that physicality they created and then experiment with putting it on different objects and then what came up from that. So then they played around with that. We looked a lot at then phrasing as well, which is not specific to this space, but I had them tape out boxes in whatever room they were using. And at this point, they've already created some choreography right through the week. So I had them take their choreography and do it in their biggest box, then in a smaller box until they were in a tiny, tiny box, right? And they had them all taped out on the floor. And then they observed what was different there. And then the final workshop was on making meaning with the camera and talking about obviously the differences in dance film or screen dance, right? To actual archival dance on camera and how the, the camera becomes your partner, right? And how do you position it? What can it do for you? 
the narrative quality that comes with that and how you tell a different story with the same movement based on your camera angle, all that sort of stuff. So that's a really long answer to your, <laughs> to your question, but that was sort of our system. We had those five days of workshops with those five different focuses. There were 30 minute workshops, then they had 30 minutes of focused choreographic time. And then the rest of the day was their own to work. And then they developed their pieces individually in the second week. And then we check in, I'd give feedback. And then each one ended up with their own full film. So about three, four minutes long. And then from everyone's full films, I pulled snippets and edited them together into the one final film, which is Choreography Confined, which is now in, in the festival circuit. Awesome. No, that was so interesting. Did you find, did, first off, what did you kind of use? Did you use Zoom, Skype, WhatsApp, one of Google Classrooms, Teams to share and workshop together? Did you find that a struggle? Because sometimes Zoom is my best friend and other times I want to throw it out the window because it just won't connect. There won't be any sound or any move, music or movement on screen. And I'm like, why? Did you have a certain platform you used and did you, how did you find it? Yeah, so we use Zoom. I have to say I've, so I also, I do some work for a youth education company in Los Angeles that I've been doing remotely for the last three years while I've been here in the UK. So I've been using Zoom for many years now before, before COVID. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's sort of an old friend of mine at this point. So it's my preferred platform. And despite, you know, the occasional hiccup, I find compared to Teams and Skype and all the rest that I, I find it the most accessible. So we did that. And because of the time differences, because we had some artists in Los Angeles, some people here in the UK and other parts of Europe. So I did two, the same workshop twice a day. And each day the dancers could choose which one they were going to tune in for. And then supplementally to that, we had a group WhatsApp group that we kind of kept the community element of things going, right? So people would share updates. They'd share little snippets of their work, right? A little screen grab of something they were working on. They'd pose questions if they had them and then we could answer them together. So, you know, despite obviously all of the tech, we were really able to build a nice little ensemble energy, which was really cool. Yeah. Did you find that because you had dancers from loads of different time zones and countries, did you find there was a real difference in style from one country to the next or the way of performing and thinking? You know, I think the common thread between everyone was that they were all also drama school trained. So there was a little bit of common, common language and understanding, particularly in the workshops and things like that. We were all sort of on a similar plane when it came when it came to that. But I think in terms of the movement quality and what was being expressed, each piece was extremely different, right? I mean, they were so unique. There were no two that were even remotely similar. But I think that speaks more to the artists themselves in their space than it does to anything cultural because it was so specific based on, you know, where they, they were, they were working. But yeah, the variety was, was great and even more varied than I expected considering they were all given the exact same music, the exact same prompt, the exact same workshops. So it was great to see. Yeah, I love that. I love how two people can look at the same script and one read it as a comedy and one read it as a really hardcore drama piece and it worked for both. Like Samuel L. Jackson was on a talk show. And I can never remember what one it is, but he was given a script for like Faulty Towers or a, a really comedy script. But he read it and translated it into like this really dark, dirty cop drama piece. And it just worked. And then they said, oh, that was actually from this. And I remember going, oh, my God, that is insane. And I think that really encompasses what you said about how two artists can take the same work and translate it completely differently. And it worked beautifully in both ways. Obviously you've lived in quite a few different places over your performing career. Have you noticed any differences in work style or creative process from one country you've worked into the other? You know, I think, um, I think it's interesting because you know, on, on the one hand, my experience in the UK overall is that there's a bit more appreciation and respect for professional training. So I appreciate that. Whereas, it, you know, in the States that exists, right? But moving to LA, for example, when I left university, I felt like, oh, well, it would have been better if you just came out here at 18 
and got right to work was sort of the attitude, right? And I was like, well, I have a drama degree and a dance degree and I've been working so hard, you know what I mean? So it was a little bit of like, eh, well, you know what I mean? Like, just do it and learn as you go is sort of the attitude. And I think there's a lot of merit to that as well. But I do think over here, there's a little bit more of that appreciation for the for the training, which I right, enjoy. But I think as well, what I like too, is there's, I think a little bit more flexibility and um, like diversity in what gets put on stage, like what kind of bodies, what kind of movement, whereas my feeling coming out of the New York and the Los Angeles market anyway, is that it's still very much, this is what a dancer looks like. This is how a dancer moves. This is what dance is, at least in a commercial way, that's going to be profitable. And that's, that's what it is, right? And there's obviously really interesting stuff going on in experimental spaces and lots of important conversations happening now about inclusion and diversity. So it's, it's improving, but I feel the general energy here tends to be a little more willing to accept a little more variety in those spaces than what I grew up in, which I think is nice. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So obviously you've been working with multimedia and dance for film and movement for film and things like that for quite a while. What would you say... Is, has been your most or your biggest challenge, not necessarily through COVID, just through your creative process and your personal performing journey? I think a lot of it comes down to like perceptions of self as an artist. I think early on, especially now that I'm in my right late 20s, I'm in a really different space than I was when I left university and just attitudes around dance and around performance and around what's possible. I think was a challenge for me that I've spent the last kind of decade maneuvering my way through, right? Because when you train as an artist, there's this idea that that is your identity and that's what you do. And that sometimes is cut off from creating your own work, right? If you're a dancer or you're an actor, you're there to, to serve the work or the director or the producer or whatever the vision is. And then you spend a lot of your young life in this identity of, you know, being a sort of, people of the work and then when you get out into the world and you're an adult looking to find jobs and you're not always obviously employed as a dancer or an actor there's a little bit of this void of um you know I can work in restaurants I can pick up shifts I can do other sorts of things but actually I'd like to be flexing my creative muscles more so how do I adapt to become a practitioner and how do I feel comfortable allowing myself to take on that role Right. So as like an early career artist in your earlier mid 20s, having the confidence to say, OK, well, I have this idea and I've saved up this little bit of money, so I'm going to produce this. But like, who cares? I'm not you know what I mean? I'm not established. I'm not this. I'm not that. So getting over all of those sort of insecurities and being able to frame my practice in a way that felt authentic um, and to sort of strip away some of what you think you should do or why you think you should do it. And to be able to embrace your own identity as a performer practitioner, I think was maybe the biggest challenge. And I'm feeling now, you know, very energized by that journey. And I think as a teacher, right, since I've been in the UK, I haven't been doing youth dance education, which is a shame because I, I love that. But I've been busy with other pursuits and running adult workshops and, and things like that. But when I was in LA, I taught a whole different you know, I taught in studios, I taught at swimming gyms, I taught in schools and worked with a lot of different kids from a lot of different communities. And really that's a big passion of mine as well, obviously working with children. I think the biggest thing that I tried to infuse into my teaching practice was making space to introduce the concept of like innovative practice with those kids, right? So even if it's just a little moment at the end of a lesson where you encourage them to come up with their own eight counts or with your older students, seeing if there are opportunities for them to maybe create some choreography or to envision elements of your show or themes, or right? Like introducing early on the, uh, the idea that like dancers can also create and you can create interdisciplinarily. And there are so many applications for movement across so many artistic disciplines and you don't have to just be a little, you know, a good little ballerina. And then when you age out of it, you're, you're, you're done. Right. I think introducing really early on that, like dancers are artists and dancers are innovators and empowering our young little dancers with that knowledge, I think is a big, is a big thing for me personally. 
Yes, definitely. Um, it's funny you should say that because a few weeks ago I was chatting to the wonderful Inga about all things business mindset and how important it is to actually understand yourself. Because I think as artists, we are the ones holding us back most of the time. It's our own insecurities and our own weaknesses or perceived weaknesses that make us go, oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't try that. I shouldn't stretch myself out of my little box. My, my I'm, I'm a dancer and I'm made for the choreographers to pick up and create their pieces for and make them look beautiful, to stretch out of our own box. And actually, it's about knowing yourself and having that conversation with yourself and going, actually, what's the worst that could happen? It doesn't work. Well, then I'm no different to how I am right now, but I might have learned something along the way. And so it's really interesting that you said like a similar thing. It shows that it crosses multiple genres and multiple styles of dance. That's really, really interesting. So obviously a lot of people are coming out this time during COVID and thinking I need to create work like you've been doing for ages for multi multimedias for different medias for different platforms to show dance in a different way than what they might be used to how would you start how would you give it a go for the first time I mean I think this is probably pretty straightforward on a technical level you need to understand the the medium that you're working with so if you're somebody that isn't super comfortable with you know working over zoom or you aren't comfortable with video editing or things like that, this is a great time for professional development, I think. And there are so many great resources online. A lot of them are free even on just the basics of working through video editing. And especially today, if you have a decent phone, you can capture some really great footage. And that's the advantage of it really just living in a computer space because it doesn't have to be a bajillion pixels, right? We're not putting it on a movie screen necessarily. Well, in the case of my film, we are because it's a film. But you know, if you're just generating work for social media and for, for the internet, you can create really beautiful work with your phone camera, right? So get to know the technology first, obviously. And then I think, I mean, for me, everyone's different, but my practice is really driven by like creative inquiry. So I'll pose a question or I'll have a curiosity, right? And I'll say, what happens if we explore X with, you know, Y restriction? So I give myself sort of, um, a little formula. Like I kind of put a scientific approach, I think, on, on developing work. But I'd say set yourself some restrictions. And the more restrictions at first, I think the better because it can be overwhelming when you're first creating. There's so many possibilities and so many ways you can go that sometimes then you lose a little bit of your focus. And I think because there's such an influx of work happening right now in digital spaces, the more focused your work is, the more likely it is to get a clear audience. Right. And it could be something like really, really specific. Like it's about, I don't know, like people who are in a specific space dealing with a specific life or whatever. I'm not thinking of a great example off the top of my head right now, but the more specific your work originally, the easier it's going to be for you to get a clear audience. And then you can build out from there once you start developing your concept. But I think getting to know your tech, starting with a specific inquiry, visualizing your audience, if that's what you're interested in. If you're just wanting to make work for the sake of making work, then the audience doesn't really matter. And that's super valid as well. But yeah, I think keeping those three things in mind are, are a good way to sort of get the process started. Yes. Um, did you or do you have a certain editing software or suite that you really recommend and use lots for editing your films? So, you know, I used to use Final Cut Pro and then I let my... <laughs> subscription uh, expire and did not pay to renew it but for the for this film that I just you know unless you're looking to do really really sophisticated editing things like iMovie on if you have a Mac can really do a lot there's a online software called ClipChamp that's like a website and then it stores the footage as well in a cloud there and that I've used for basic editing and that's really user-friendly. That's probably a good one to get started with as well because you can access it from any computer. And I think it's really user-friendly and it gives you all the basic things you need. So, you know, that's kind of the great thing about our, our tech now is that even, I mean, not for this particular project, but for smaller things, for social media and stuff like that, even the video editing on my phone is decent. So I'd say find whatever's accessible to you before you invest any money in it, certainly. 
play around with what you have. And then once you've developed your skills and your competence and you're looking to do some more sophisticated editing, there are lots of great programs you can rent as well online. Awesome. So when you come to editing your work, do you usually start with the music and then fit the scenes around it? Or do you look at the, so in this case, there are three minute films. Do you watch all of them and write down what bits you liked? How do you come to assemble it? Yeah, great question. So I think for me, the music is pretty much all, I'd say 98% of the time, the driving force in my in my composition, right? That's sort of my baseline. So for this particular project, I plugged in the music track first, right? And layered that down. And then, as you said, I went through each film and I watched them all. And I found the movement that in my first initial glance was like the most compelling or the most interesting, right? So I pulled out all of those clips, cut them up and put them on the timeline with the music track. And then once I had all of that, I was like, okay, these are the bits that I have to have in. Now I'll go back in. And it was just rounds and rounds of that, going back to the original films, pulling it out. And then as I started to do that, what for me, now the film isn't a narrative per se, right? It doesn't clearly tell a story of any kind, but obviously for any choreographer, as you're building your piece, whether it's the aesthetic or your own inner vision, right? You have a, a narrative that's building for yourself as, as you create it. So for me, the narrative started to emerge as I was filling that in. And then I was able to piece it together in a way that felt like the complete story for me, but also obviously fit within, within the musical score in a way that felt right. So it was a bit of a long process. And there were so many times where, you know, you'd get to the point where you'd almost have it all done. And then there'd be a piece where it didn't fit with the music, but the movement was what you wanted. And then you had to rearrange everything all over again. So it was a frustrating and fulfilling and fun experience. <laughs> Almost like a jigsaw. You've got to try and fit the pieces together right to make your final vision. Um, so when, obviously with yours, you had dancers everywhere and then having to film themselves, did you have much dictatorship on, I would really like a shot from the right by your piano and then another one from up high when you're on the, in the little, what is he in, like a little cupboard at one point. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have much say over that? You know, I expected originally that that would be something that I would step in and do, but I have to give credit to my dancers because they, what they, you know, we had that workshop that was all about working with the camera. And I took them through a lot of different exercises. We placed the camera in different places and they go back and watch it. So in real time, they got to understand the effects of different perspectives, where, you know, the possibilities of the camera in their space. So we did all of that together. And then when they sent me back their initial footage, I was like, great, okay, I'm going to review this. I'm going to have to give them notes on how to, and the camera variety was brilliant. And I, I mean, they just really took that workshop and really put it in, into play in a really wonderful way. And they're, you know, gifted artists as well. I'm very grateful for their, for their talent because it made my job easier so yeah I didn't really have to do much in terms of that although I expected that I would initially did you have like a for dummies guide almost like if if you're at a loss from where to film from go for these three angles first you know I didn't I think I think taking them through the the workshop day with that gave them their own sort of understanding of what what was going to work for them. Cause we talked about obviously perspective, right. And about the relationship to the lens and the, the closer you are, the more intimate it is when it's not clear initially what part of the body we're looking at. It creates this idea of abstraction as opposed to when we have a full. So we kind of talked about the basic tenets of dance camera theory 101 a little bit in that workshop session. But I think learning by doing right, having them play around with it. And then after our workshop, they continued working independently playing around with that as well. I think they found what, what worked for them and what's interesting because it is so different, right? And it's extra challenging. I mean, I have to give them credit again. When you're the dancer and the videographer, um, that is a tough call because when I've done dance film work in the past, I've choreographed it and filmed it and edited it, but I've never been in it myself, right? Or if I've been in a film piece, someone else is always doing the filming and, and the editing. So it was a big ask and they really took it on in a really great way. 
Yeah. So for people that are looking to create a piece of film or a piece of film, YouTube or Vimo or whatever platform they're deciding they're going to upload their next um, choreographic piece to, would you just say to just play with different camera angles or? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a process that has to take time, right? It's not the sort of medium where you can cut corners and and get it out quickly and I think get a fulfilling result. So that's the reality of it is that it's tedious work, especially when you're doing it on your own, right? Because you put your camera down in one place, you go through your choreography. I mean, my suggestion would be, and this is what I did with the girls in, in my piece, is create your choreography first. It can be done differently as well. And there's a lot of merits to creating it specifically for the camera. But I think if you're starting out fresh, create your choreography first and then bring in the camera, put it in all different places, right? Put it at all different proximities to your body and watch how the same choreography transforms in meaning. Um, and I think that's a good starting point. Then from there, once you make all those observations, then go ahead and start maybe tweaking the movement. But I would say the initial instinct sometimes, I think for new dance filmmakers is to dance for the camera, which intellectually is what you're doing, right? But I think that can create work that isn't as authentic as it might be able to be if you create your movement first and then see how it looks and then adjust as you go, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that does make complete sense. And have, where you've obviously done some youth work and things, and you said you st- you've been Zooming for ages across the States, um, have you done much with youth and multimedia? No, I can't say that I have, actually. All of my youth work has been in person. Um, although that the teaching that I do online is not dance, it's innovation education. So that's a little bit different because we're sitting and creating with our hands and, and doing things like that. So that's easier to do online than dance. But no, although I would love, I mean, it, you know, not being affiliated with the studio right now, I'm not in a place to do that, but I would love to be able to explore that. So if any, any studio directors or teachers are listening and would like a uh, virtual workshop, I'm DBS checked and ready to go. So uh, <laughs> if that's... If that's something that anyone's open to to doing, I think that would be really fascinating. But yeah, no, I haven't had the opportunity to do it yet. Yeah, because I'm just thinking about from my perspective, where I teach kids 18 and under, I'm like, oh, that'll be so exciting to be able to do something that they can film at home and then edit together. But my brain goes, where would you even start with trying to teach the parents how to film their kids and how the kids to... Ignore the camera. No, we could, you know, you would simplify it, right? There's, you could definitely block it down. Like you suggested earlier, right? You give them an op, you give them one sheet with options of camera angles. You give, it has a little graphic next to it that shows them how to set it up, right? And then they just choose. And then you could almost do it something like you give them a paper die, right? And they roll the die and that's the camera angle they're going to use. And then they have a second die that's maybe one through eight. And each number represents one count of eight. And then depending on what movement they roll and what camera angle they roll, they put that together. So it takes out the creative process of having to like configure your vision for filming it, right? And it, But it gives them the opportunity to access a new medium in a fun and a little bit easier way. Yes, I love that. Um, so going back to your piece, Choreography Combined, um, you said it's going around the festival circuits and things. So how's it going? Tell us about Yeah, it's going really well. So well, in fact, I don't even remember off the top of my head how many festivals we're in now. We, because it's, you know, it's sort of, we keep getting, hearing back from places and things. So every week there's kind of a new update. But um, so we've won at one festival and we've been a finalist at two festivals and then a semi-finalist at another. So those are kind of the biggies. And then there are six or seven other festivals that we've been accepted into so far. And then we're waiting to hear on, on some more. So we've, of course, the screening is all virtual right now, given the times that we've virtually screened at a few places so far. And then hopefully a few of the festivals are going to do in-person things in the future that they're moving. So we'll be at some in-person festivals, hopefully next year as well. That's awesome. And um, have you applied for festivals globally or are you mainly doing the festival circuit in the UK or the US or Europe? Yeah, all over the place. I mean, mostly um, Europe and the US, but I think there was one festival we applied to that was based out of 
India. Um, I mean, it's a great, I'm sure filmmakers are familiar with Film Freeway. It's sort of the uh, website that compiles all, basically all of the competitive film festivals that exist sort of in one place. And you can search festivals and filter. So you can look for short films, dance films, whatever. It's a really great user-friendly resource. So I found through Film Freeway, all of these wonderful festivals that I never heard of before that were looking for dance films or short films, or there are even some festivals that have had COVID film categories, um, which this sort of falls into as well. So yeah, it's been really interesting to see, you know, in some of the festivals that have already screened the diversity of work, but I would say that most of the festivals we're involved in have a really global participant group, which is, which is really kind of nice. I think at this time more than ever, we're starting to see that in online spaces, the periphery, uh, peripheralation, I should say, of, of more global artistic community building. Yeah, I agree. I think in some ways the the boundaries of countries have really fallen down online. And then in the real world, they're like even more rigid where the country lines are. It's bizarre how the really two strange phenomenon. Yeah. yeah. Um, so a bit of a personal question, you don't have to answer. But um when it comes to like making a living and things, is are these festivals ones where you'll get a prize and it will be like a monetary thing? How do you fund your work? If you don't mind, you don't have to. Um, no, that's totally fine. So with the festivals, you know, some of them do have prizes, like cash prizes, but when it comes down to the like right, there's a fee to submit, there's me hopefully, although this doesn't always happen, like paying myself, right, for editing and things like that, and being able to pay my artists when I can, which I should point out that this project was all um, volunteer-based, so all of my dancers participated in this of their own goodwill as as talented dancers, and the project hasn't made any money <laughs> yet. There's just been money put into it so far, so in terms of things like that, anything you get back you know, normally would then go into your submission fees because the more festivals you submit to, the more money you're spending. But in terms of me producing my own work, um, it's pretty much all self-produced rolling over from past projects. So in 2019, I um, I left drama school. I got my master's at East 15 um, here in London. And my dissertation was a one-woman show, um, a short one but I liked it. And I was like, I want to make it a real show. So I left grad school and uh, I wrote the show and I was acting in it. And I was like, well, it can't be like written by me, starring me, produced by me. That's just like a little too much. So let me start a production company and I can produce this under that umbrella. And then whatever I make on the show, I'll just give back to the company. And then I'll use that to self-fund future projects. So fortunately, um, the show went pretty well for a fringe show. Um, I did it at the Hollywood Fringe Festival. I did it at the Clapham Fringe here in London, and then I did it off-off-Broadway at the Manhattan Repertory Theater. And that was sort of summer and fall of 2019 was me touring that show. So everything I've done since then has been funded by the quickly dwindling <laughs> profits of that, that Fringe show that I, that I did. But, you know, there's always grants. I apply for grants. I haven't gotten any yet. I mean, it's a competitive space, right? But I do always say there's... There's so many specific project needs as well. The more you scour the internet, the more likely you are to find something that really fits your methodology. So I'm waiting to hear back on a few right now, which will hopefully fund. I'm working on like another dance project now that's going to be partnered by some other virtual projects that hopefully exist in a permanent physical space whenever we're allowed to be in physical spaces. So yeah, I mean, it's just sort of one of those, one of those things. I'd, I'd say, you know, it's, it's a balance. Certainly don't throw money at things if you're not sure. Never count on getting it back, I would say, right, as an early career producer. Um, so if you can't risk losing it, don't invest it. And there are ways to create smaller scale stuff at home without taking on that financial risk. But I've been fortunately, you know, been able to make things work because some things go well and other things self-fund until they hopefully go well enough to refund more projects. Yeah, I love that. And you were so brave to go, double masters, I'm taking this everywhere, straight away, rather than going, oh, I just do a little thing. No, you went straight in. <laughs> well, I had the momentum. I think there's something to be said for, you know, if anyone is in training, when you first leave school, it can be very much, and I, you know, I already went through that with my undergrad, right? I finished, I had my BFA in acting and my minor in dance. 
And then I was like, I'm going to move to LA and do the thing. And so I, I did, but it's because I had the momentum just coming, coming out of school. I don't know if I could have picked up and, and done that without that. And same thing with this, right? I finished my master's and I was like, gotta mom, work, I'm gonna make my own. And then I just went with it. And fortunately, I have a home base in New York and in Los Angeles. So it makes it easier to just plop down in a city and work when that's a home base for you. Obviously, I wasn't like popping up in places I'd never lived and trying to generate audiences out of nothing. That would have been a much harder thing to do. Yeah, definitely. Have you found when you're advertising for your like your one woman show that obviously happened in person before this COVID weirdness happened? Did you find that you were marketing it in a certain way that really appealed? Like, how did you go about filling your seats? I mean, I think a lot of it is it depends on the festival, right? Like some festivals do a really great job of getting the word out, um, and then they also have options where you can like select marketing packages with them. And I'd say whenever you can, it's probably worth selecting a marketing package in your price range through a festival to kind of help get the word out because they just have such a big platform. Um, so that's a piece of it. I'd say a lot of it was word of mouth as well. Again, because in those in New York and LA and, and London, I have communities of dancers and actors and people that I know, right? So you kind of rally your artistic communities. And I'd say that's probably the biggest thing. If you can get people in your artistic circles excited about your work and they know other artists, then you automatically have a usually pretty supportive community that's going to come and show some support. And then I think figuring out what the unique selling point of your show is, and then looking for spaces to market that. So my show was about a woman who's wrongfully put in an institution, right? There are themes of like some themes of abuse and some themes of motherhood and what that means and identity. And right. So I kind of looked for spaces that would get excited about those sort of narratives and then marketed specifically there rather than to just general spaces. So yeah, know your audience, know your community and look to the experts running your festival because they probably know more than you. Yeah, they're definitely great, helpful tips. Thank you. Oh, how has this hour gone so fast? Um, I always ask, what is one piece of, piece of advice, a person, a teacher, a mentor, has given you that you will always remember? I had a teacher. She was actually the director of my choir in high school. So she was teaching me music from the time I was like 12 until I was 18, right, in school. And she did all the musicals and all of our shows and things like that. And I was very conflicted leaving school about whether to pursue the arts or not. And that was something that you know, growing up, I was very much on that track, but I also grew up in a community where it was like, well, that's meant to like nourish you and like, you know, give you useful skills so you can like go to law school or med school, right? Those are just like supplemental to your liberal arts education. But I was like, actually, could it be possible for me to do this for real? You know, and that's so scary, but like, how do I decide, right? And um, she was like, if you can't, imagine yourself being as happy doing anything else, then this is what you should do. And it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. And it doesn't mean that it will, you know, you're not going to find fame and fortune necessarily. So you have to be prepared for that. But if it's the only thing you can see yourself doing, then that's your decision. It's a blessing and a curse, right? And this is what I try and say that people as well, especially early career artists, like if you can imagine yourself being happy doing anything else, equally happy, you should probably do that because it will probably be an easier life. But if you can't, then you don't have a choice, really. You're sort of at the whim of your passion. And that's a really exciting way to live. Uh, but it's, you know, it's a volatile way to live, but I'm really enjoying it and would recommend it. But yeah, I, I think that was the biggest thing. If you can see yourself doing anything else and being happy, do that instead. But if, if you can't, then this is what you have to do. Yeah, definitely. I think that applies to everything in life. I'm a firm believer that you should do things that make you happy. And if you are one of these people that's like, I hate Mondays, I hate my job, I hate this, I hate that, well, then you need to do something to change that. I'm not saying quit your job, but I'm saying when you finish work at four, five, whatever time you finish, look for another job or look for another place to live or wh whatever is that thing that's holding you back you are the only one that can change it someone's not going to just 
pop up and be like, I'm your fairy godmother. What job would you like? That's not the way the world works. So you need to make yourself happy. And in turn, you will then make other people happier because you are happy. So I, I completely agree. Um, so on the flip side, what advice would you give to other teachers or other practitioners? I think, I mean, I think specifically for teaching, nourish what you notice, right? So yes, ideally, I mean, dance is, is an art and it's stylized and there's what's correct, right? And you can't see me, listeners, I'm using my air quotes. And then there's what's, you know, abstract and there are, all, there are rules, right? So yes, as a teacher, you're looking to produce the highest quality dancers that you can. That's part of the job. But obviously with the knowledge that not every single child coming out of your class is going to go on to a professional dance life and maybe they don't all want to, nourish what you notice, meaning if you're observing a specific skill or a specific passion or a specific element of their dance training that they're really excelling in, find ways to call that out and to make that child aware of that skill that you're observing and empower them with that, right? Because not every child has parents that are have the luxury of having the time to really observe all of their strengths in a really clear way. Dance teachers have a really wonderful gift, right, in the opportunity to really watch how children think and grow and train. And that's not always a perspective that other adults in their lives are are getting, right? Like we, we really get those children in a really unique space. So call out what you see them excelling at, let them know what their skills are, right? They might not know. And then lean into the gifts of your students as well, whenever you have the capacity to do that, I think is, is important. Yes, I love that. And so to finish, tell us where we can learn more about you and what your work, where should we go to learn more? Yeah, so um, my website is just shaydonovan.org, and that also houses all of my work with Indigo Arts Collective. So that's a great place to look. Also on Instagram, it's just at Indigo Arts Collective. We're doing a new project right now that's launching at the beginning of February. It's called Doorstep Dances, and it just features some really wonderful explorations with door frames. Um, and again, dancers from all different places creating really interesting work with the limitation of only having their door frame as their stage, if you will. And that's in partnership with a fundraiser for Dancers Responding to AIDS, which is a U.S.-based charity that I worked with quite a lot in my early pre-professional performance days. Uh, and they do really, really great work. And they're raising funds right now, not just for people who are suffering from HIV AIDS, but for anyone who's in the artistic community who's been affected by COVID-19. And they're raising funds to provide meals for, for performers in the States. So really great project, really great charity. That's what we're working on now. But yeah, check out our website, our Instagram. We're always looking to collaborate as well. All of the workshops that we do for adults are easily adaptable for youth. And as I said, I'm able to work with children in, in the UK. So if you are you know, wanting to reach out about anything, I'm happily able to create bespoke workshops as well, even. So if a teacher at your studio wants to deliver it, I can craft it for you and then do something like that. Awesome. And I'll put all those links in the description for you as well. 